My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a mother of five, a patriarchalist, and the author of Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation. Please welcome Rachel Wilson. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. The book of John, chapter 8, verse 32, famously reads, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. For the past 150 years at least, America and the Western world have been laboring under the increasingly heavy yoke of a socio-political movement that has not only distorted, but completely inverted God's design for men, women, and families. And at the moment, with the impending collapse of the birth rate, driven by women exhausting their fertile years in pursuit of good times and careers, it looks like this movement may succeed in generating a near-total societal collapse. That movement is known as feminism. It's a small, seemingly innocuous label applied to a powerful force of destruction and chaos. And it only survives to this day because of a single claim that as openly violent, hateful, and radical as modern-day feminists have become, the quote, first-wave feminists were noble, good, virtuous, and cared about correcting historical wrongs, putting themselves on the line for the good of women everywhere. There's a quote I heard years ago by the French author Honoré de Balzac. He said, quote, The secret of a great success, for which you are at a loss to account, is a crime that has never been found out because it was properly executed. In other words, behind every great fortune is a crime. I'd say that feminism has had great fortune in America and the West, which means that if we go digging somewhere deep in the past, we'll likely find a crime. That crime will reveal the true nature of feminism, that it was never good, never virtuous, never righteous. In fact, its origins were much darker. And I pray with my whole heart, that truth will set us free. Which brings me to my guest this week. Her name is Rachel Wilson, and she's the author of the excellent book, Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation. She went digging and found that women were not as, quote, historically oppressed as we've been told. Throughout history, women owned property and businesses, created works of art and philosophy, had genuine autonomy, and of course, were wives and mothers cared for in the safety of the home. But that authentic history of women has been scrubbed from the textbooks by second and third wave feminist academics seeking to cement their historical narrative of women as cosmic victims. Then, and here's the crucial part, these feminists cover the tracks of their first-wave forebears, many of whom were occultists, theosophists, Kabbalists, and mystics, not to mention Marxists and communists, funded by wealthy industrialists, elites who are into many of the same practices. In other words, as hard as it may be for you to believe, and I'll say this slowly, Feminism and Luciferianism are inextricably linked. Don't believe me? A famous first-wave feminist was a woman named Virginia Clayfin Woodhull. 
she became associated with Cornelius Vanderbilt as his, quote, spirit medium and gave him stock tips that he used to build his fortune. As a result, he bankrolled her to open the first female-owned trading company on the New York Stock Exchange in 1870. Sounds good so far, right? Yay, feminism. Well, that company then made so much money, Virginia used the profits to start a newspaper, which then published the first-ever English version of the Communist Manifesto. Or how about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who, along with 23 other feminists, wrote the Women's Bible in 1895? She says in the introduction, quote, Those who have the divine insight to translate, transpose, and transfigure this mournful object of biblical womanhood into an exalted, dignified personage worthy of our worship as the mother of the race are to be congratulated as having share of the occult mystic's power of the Eastern Mahatmas. For those of you who saw my Exiting the New Age presentation, you'll understand that Eastern mysticism and goddess worship are one and the same. Both of these examples, and many more, can be found in Rachel Wilson's book, Can You See the Crime? What we call first-wave feminism was really women practicing black magic and occultism while being financed by wealthy elites. Together, they unleashed a force of spiritual destruction onto the earth and into the hearts of women. Over the following decades, as the infection progressed, agents of that spiritual destruction were able to erase the academic record of what previous generations had done. Until finally, over a century later, with God removed from the public square, the infection could proceed unchecked. And today, the patient is near terminal. And that, I believe, is why Christianity is so particularly powerful in healing these wounds within women and men too. The sanctification process chases out not just bad, but satanic ideas. Over the past three years, I've smashed, burned, and destroyed as many of my outward relics of the New Age as I can find and I've experienced the same process within, and I know I'm not alone. So if you're still struggling to free any part of yourself from the illusion of first-wave feminism as merely about politics or economics, please pick up Rachel Wilson's book, Occult Feminism. Through her vital work of reading the primary source documents herself, she uncovered that the true history of feminism is of anti-Christian spiritual warfare. May the truth that she's discovered set you free as well. In our conversation, Rachel and I discussed her upbringing and background, the anti-suffrage movement and the truth of Susan B. Anthony, feminism's false promise of safety to women, Christianity versus Americanism, the cultural fear-mongering against motherhood, and Rachel's work with Pearl from Just Pearly Things. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please help this podcast grow by sharing it with a friend. Plus, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a five-star rating on Spotify. A quick note for my listeners, on the evening of Friday, August 25th, I'll be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we'll be hosting a public meetup. I'll be sharing more details very soon in next week's Ask Me Anything on social media and on my email list. So stay tuned to the podcast, subscribe to my email newsletter at renofmen.com slash newsletter, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at renofmen to find out more. Plus, mark your calendars now for the third edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series, coming up on Saturday, November 11th. This one has taken a bit longer to put together, but I think you're going to like it. I'm assembling a team to speak to one of the most crucial demographics today, young men under the age of 30. So again, mark your calendars for Saturday, November 11th, and more information about the lineup of speakers and their assigned virtues will be coming soon. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine coffee beans, hand-roasted by the dapper and dashing 
three-piece suited pastor Brandon Lansdowne in Springfield, Missouri. He and his family drove out to Grace Agenda in Moscow, Idaho last week with 100 pounds of coffee beans, and those spicy and saucy reformers drank almost all of it before taking dominion over the entire American readout before midnight on Saturday, because they had to take the Sabbath off, obviously. So if you're looking for that level of flavor and energy in your morning cup, allow me to recommend Reformation Coffee. But you'll need more than just one bag. We don't know when Christ is coming back, hashtag datpostmill, so we've got to keep working until he does. So it's probably going to take a monthly subscription till we get there, which is why you can go to reformationcoffee.com and enter the code subfree for one free 12-ounce bag of coffee to get you started in your Dominion work. Again, go to reformationcoffee.com and enter the code subfree and Brandon will roast you up one free 12-ounce bag with your new subscription and probably wear a three-piece suit while he's doing it. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, a mother of five and patriarchalist who did the dirty work to dig into the secrets of women's so-called liberation, the author of Occult Feminism, Rachel Wilson. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So uh, my listeners know that back in February of this year, I did a presentation called Exiting the New Age. So I had spent uh, about 20 years wandering through the New Age until I finally found my way to Christ in in 2020, the the great blessing of my life. And so earlier this year, I did a a long presentation sort of of taking the New Age apart. And the day that I gave the presentation, I discovered your book. And it was too late for me. It was super spooky. I was actually kind of frustrated. I was like, oh, wow, because you talked about, you know, Annie Besant and Alice Bailey and the Theosophical Society, all of which I got into. And so I wasn't able to incorporate any of your material, but I did get to put it on screen. So I've been looking forward to talking to you since then to dig into the subject matter of the book. Well, that's, that's excellent to hear. I never got a chance to dabble in any of that sort of stuff myself. I was raised Christian and probably one of the like rarer cases of people that didn't ever have like a big falling away and then come back or something like that. But I certainly didn't expect to find when I started research for this book four years ago now that, you know, I thought it was going to be a book about like the economic aspects of feminism and who funded it and things like that. And as I was profiling most of the famous like earlier suffragettes and, and feminist activists from the 17, 1800s, around the Victorian era, I was like, really surprised to find that most, not just a few, but most of them were into theosophy, uh, esotericism of various forms. And I thought, well, this seems to be a really huge influence. So I can't leave that out. Um, Mm -hmm. So it really had to be a part of the story. I don't think it's not often included in the mainstream academic, you know, version of feminist history, but it was a huge, huge influence on feminism itself. So I definitely had to cover that in the book. So before we get into the book, can we talk a little bit about your background? I see you've been on Fox News and did that help influence some of some of the research here? Like how did you how did you decide to write a book on feminism in the first place? Yeah, it's kind of strange. The the Fox News thing happened after everything and is kind of unrelated to the feminist stuff. So I'll try to kind of explain briefly. Um, I was actually raised by I think I had a kind of typical Gen X setup where I had a very feminist Marxist educated mother and then kind of like a a conservative patriot Rush Limbaugh dad, right? And 
to the surprise of no one, uh, that didn't work out. And they divorced when I was a child. <laughs> didn't did so, not see that coming. Yeah. Who could have, who could have seen it? Right. Um, but it, it gave me these two different worlds growing up, right. To I'd be with my mom and hear like one version of her worldview and then be with my dad and hear a completely different one. And as a kid, you know, you're not political or anything like that. You're just trying to make sense of stuff. And I saw what that did to my mother and didn't think I wanted to follow that. And I saw the cognitive dissonance as well. So when I got out of the house at 19, um, I thought I made the typical mistake that most of us make because of the culture we live in, which is I can just move in with my boyfriend. We'll get married. You know, we're going to get married. It's going to happen. And, but we can just move in together because it's practical and we can pay the bills and I don't have to live with my parents anymore. And um, had my first daughter at 20, which was a surprise, but I was very happy because I always thought I would have children at some point. And I thought, well, it's a little sooner than I thought, but, but this is all fine, right? Uh, that didn't quite work out for me. Um, another mm -hmm. shocker, living with your boyfriend is not the best idea. And so uh, he kind of had a different view of what he wanted to do with his life and had some of his own personal issues going on. And he left. So here I am, a single mom at 20. I was already pregnant with number two. And I thought, how did I get here? I, I fully never intended on being a single mom. I wanted to do anything possible to avoid that for my kids because it wasn't good for me growing up. And I kind of started to just ask a lot of questions about, you know, I wasn't the type of person that you would expect that. I was never promiscuous. I wasn't a huge partier or anything. So I was like, how did I get here and why? you know, why is everyone I know a single mom? Why do all of the moms work? Because I didn't want to. As soon as I had my daughter, I really wanted to stay home. And nobody around me supported that either. Because I would say, you know, if I had the choice, if I had like a, a husband who was financially stable and I could stay home, which is, you know, what I got shortly thereafter, by the grace of God, um, that's what I would do. And I thought it makes no sense for me to pay half of what I make to give that money to someone else, just a different woman to be a stand-in for me all day, every day to do what I should be doing, which is raise my own children. And when I would say this to the women around me, I would get so much pushback. And I thought, I'm pretty sure I'm making sense, you know? And yeah. so I got very good at defending my ideas and my choices. Of course, I did find a really fantastic guy, got remarried, had three more children, stayed home, uh, homeschooled them, which was another thing. I had no support in from the people around me, even people who were Christian, who were more conservative. So again, I'm here I am defending what I think are like historically very normal values and choices in my life. Um, and everyone around me is telling me it's dangerous. You know, you, you have to have your own money. You have to have a career because if you don't, your husband's going to become abusive. Or what if he leaves you and just all this fear mongering about motherhood and and, you know, staying home and homeschooling? What if your kids turn out weird? What if they don't get properly educated? Just all of, so I got very good at like arguing these things to people and defending my own choices, which is kind of how I got into the idea of writing the book. My kids started to get older. My oldest three became adults and I'm in my mid forties now. And so I said to my husband, you know, the kids are almost, we're almost done. Like we only have six, seven more years before they're all adults. Maybe I should think about, you know, what I want to do 
I want to be a very involved grandmother and, and work with my church and things, but you know, I have a lot of talents and what do you think I should do? And he said, you know, you're really good at kind of defending motherhood and homeschooling and, and knocking down feminism and almost no women are doing that. Maybe you should write a book or something. And I had other friends at the time, like Aaron Clary, who's an author and a streamer. And he was like, you know, I really think you should throw your hat in the ring and give it a shot. So I thought, okay, I don't know if anyone's ever going to read this book, but, but, you know, I'll put one together and see, see what happens. Um, so the book came out and the next month it was, it didn't do a lot, you know, cause I'm not, uh, I don't have a publisher. It's self-published. I thought maybe no one, but my dad and I would ever read it. <laughs> And a month after I got asked by uh, the editor of the Gab News blog to write a piece about homeschooling during the pandemic, because we saw this huge rise in homeschooling because of that it was kind of an unexpected consequence of lockdowns. So I wrote this article and it kind of went viral and the producers from Tucker Carlson saw it and asked if I would come on and talk about that. So that's actually what my Tucker appearance was about, was about um, homeschooling and kind of taking back the culture via reclaiming motherhood and educating our own children rather than having the state raise our kids and educate them. So after that, of course, uh, the book picked up steam because I was getting a lot of exposure on social media and it's kind of been going nuts ever since then. So just right place, right time a little bit. And also I think because the red pill, like dating shows are so popular right now and there's very few women on my side of the aisle at all. And even less of us are approaching it from kind of a historic academic kind of an approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like a confluence of a bunch of factors. I think that yeah. there are a lot of men and women, well, men have been asking questions about feminism for a while. That's the origin of the red pill, which has its origins in the pickup days, right? Where they yeah. discover their big so quote unquote sociological experiment about how feminism was lying. And then that all got adapted into red pill. And now it's spreading to women who are finally asking questions about feminism the same way you have. It's like, why yeah. am I getting pushback when I say I want to stay home with my kids? What's going yeah. on there? Yeah, yeah. Just this, there's a very antinatalist attitude that yeah. goes along with all of this that, I mean, we've been dealing with that for over a century now, this idea that humans are bad for the planet and babies are going to, you know, uh, somehow contribute to climate change or overpopulation. And so you, the rhetoric is very anti-child, like every female comedian, a lot of sitcoms, a lot of the pop culture stuff is very like, ew, children are icky. And, and uh, what do you want to be just a baby factory? I mean, some of the things that people say to me on social media are pretty rough. So I know I can be a little bit uh, provocative on Twitter sometimes, but believe me, it's not like any of the women who don't like my ideas are kind to me either. No. <laughs> you know, they make all kinds of assumptions. I must be stupid. I must be lazy. I just couldn't hack it in the career world. I must be brainwashed or be in an abusive marriage. Like all these kinds of just presumptions that if you're not a feminist, you are the one who broke the sisterhood and you are the one who must have an issue, that kind of a thing. And I think more and more women are encountering that. They're looking at their lives in the career world or looking at the lives of women who are a generation ahead of them in the career world and seeing that they're unfulfilled, they're lonely, they're depressed, so uh, antidepressant use is skyrocketing, et cetera. And they're trying to find another path to travel. And as soon as they start to change and start to make another path of being a homemaker, of being a mother, 
they experience all this pushback in the same way that you, it's like, what's going on there? Yeah, it's, it's very wild when you, you think you're saying something that seems so natural, you know, you have this precious baby and, and you're so in love with your newborn. And the last thing you want to do is be separated from your brand new child for hours a day, maybe 40, 50 hours a week. And it's like, oh, I get to see my child a couple hours in the evening and maybe a little on the weekend. And then the rest of my life is about working and waging and paying taxes and increasing the GDP or something like that. And yeah, it's very, like you start to just ask yourself, why? Like, how did we get here? How is this the normal thing? And then you know, when I did start doing some research and I found, oh, we have crashing birth rates. There's no risk of overpopulation. We are, we've been well below replacement for decades in most of the world. Why don't I ever hear about that? And then you see, um, you know, studies where they say that in just three to four more years, we're going to be in a situation where half of women are not going to have children in the West. Yeah. Half. That's never historically happened. And you think, that can't be good, right? So why is why is the whole culture telling me that, you know, I'm a loser for wanting to stay home with my child? Uh, I've had people say things to me like, oh, it's such a shame you never did anything with your life. <laughs> people who think they're my friends, like these are women who think what? they're my friends. Yeah, they went off to university and got degrees, you know, and they maybe had one child and and their attitude towards me is, oh, Rachel, you're so smart and you're so talented. It's such a shame you never did anything with any of that. And I would just be like, first of all, ouch. Like, why did you think that was okay to say? But second of all, I've raised five really great human beings who all turned out to be like high achieving, very functional, very mature, educated, very moral people who are going to go off into the world and make it better. Why is that not a valid thing to do with my life? So yeah, and it, you know, it kind of made me mad. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I get a little frustrated with it. So uh, I guess, you know, my husband's idea about it was most women don't want to go against that grain. They don't want to be the only fish swimming upstream when all the other fish are swimming downstream. And he's like, you kind of have a thick skin about it. You can kind of take it pretty well. Um, therefore, you know, since I understand these things, since I have this information, since I've spent years studying how we got here, it's kind of like I have a bit of an obligation to dispel some of the myths and to make life more comfortable for women who are trying to do what I'm trying to do. Right. And that's luckily that's the feedback I've gotten. I get messages daily, multiple messages on social media, through my email, on my YouTube channel from women saying, you know, I want to be a stay at home mom and I just had a child and I don't want to go back to work. And my mother doesn't approve or my sister thinks it's a bad idea. And and you've kind of helped me find a way to articulate, you know, a good reasoning behind my choices as well. And you've given me some confidence in doing that. So that's really all I'm trying to do is not take rights away from women and force them back into the kitchen and chain them to a stove. No, no, no. It's more just, I want it to be a valid and uh, venerated choice to dedicate yourself to motherhood in a serious way, to be proud of being a good wife, to have a spirit of appreciation and cooperation with your husband rather than the spirit of like combativeness and cooperation. So to me, it's, it's pretty sensible. It's pretty historically normal. 
yet in this day and time, I'm kind of like all alone on, on one side of the spectrum here with just a handful of other women. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot more soon, but I appreciate you highlighting that the pushback, the most extreme pushback comes from women. Yeah. The sisterhood, it's a, it's a real thing. And you try and point it out the way that women can be absolutely vicious to each other about these issues. There's, there's almost nothing that's less tolerated on social media than to actually point out the existence of the sisterhood that keeps women locked into this way of being because women are so agreeable. Like as Jordan Peterson says, trait agreeableness, women are naturally higher in it. So they don't yeah. want to break that sisterhood, but there's such an honorable cadre of women that are trying to do that, that are doing that. And I, and I regard them as very brave to do so. Yeah, it's not easy. I will tell you that I get plenty of hate. I have a whole folder of hate mail on my phone that uh, sometimes I like to read it for chuckles just to show how insane and and like what the cognitive dissonance looks like. It's like women who are telling me that they're feminists because they want women to be heard. They want them to have choice. They want them to be free to do what they want to do with their life are the same women saying, I hope your husband cheats on you. I can't wait until he leaves you. Uh, I hope your children grow up and never speak to you again. Uh, you know, you should you should never be on social media. Get off social media. And I'm just like, wait, everyone else has a, every woman's voice to, deserves to be heard except for mine, apparently, you know? So it's just, it's endless cognitive dissonance. And all you have to do is just be a little bit rational to just knock it down endlessly. And that's one of the reasons I do a lot of live stream debates because uh, number one, it's fun for me. It's like a kind of a competitive intellectual sport, but also because it's a very good way to highlight how irrational the entire ideology is, how when you try to poke logical holes in it, it completely collapses. It's not that hard to do. It's just that very few people want to stick their neck out and do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's very emotionally charged. And I think yeah. some of that, your book helped me understand. Because whenever I see something these days irrational, that's highly emotionally charged, I naturally start thinking there's some sort of spiritual manipulation going on, yeah. right? People don't get worked up over intellectual ideas. And I think you put your finger on something in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I, in the book, I say, um, it wasn't me who said it, actually. I quote Susanna Budapest, who is uh, she was one of the first witches to legally have a witch coven in the United States. She came here from the Czech Republic in the 60s, I believe, uh, left communism there, came here and went to San Francisco, where things were pretty liberal. And she fought for religious freedom for because witchcraft was actually illegal here until the 70s. And she had a like a witch coven that was open and public and it was challenged and she went to court and said, you know, we have religious freedom here. Uh, you can't tell me I can't be a witch. And she won. And she said that uh, feminism is simply the political arm of a spiritual battle. It's just the political arm of this greater spiritual warfare we're in. And that's why I had to explain how these early feminists saw Christianity as the enemy because they saw it as patriarchal and oppressive. And they saw Lucifer as their liberator openly. People may not know that these seemingly benign figures like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady, you know, the the typical suffragettes that we all hear about, and they're only ever spoken of in a positive light. I mean, for Pete's sake, President Trump posthumously pardoned Susan B. Anthony uh, for her illegal voting uh, stuff that she was doing. 
they're just spoken of as these sweet little old ladies who were just, uh, you know, trying to help the women. And it's like, no, they were openly declaring Lucifer as their mascot, as their symbol of being a liberator. And people aren't aware that there's this deeper philosophical and religious and spiritual ideology underpinning all of this stuff. Well, let's get into that because, you know, when you start pushing back on feminism, you'll get a lot of feminists to say, oh, you know, all the man-hating stuff, that's just all radical feminism. That's, that's since the yeah. 1960s. Like before that, it was just about equal rights. That's really what, what it was about. So that seems to be that period of time, the late, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, seems to have branded itself as like, that's the pure feminism. And that's one of, the, that's one of my favorite parts of your book is like you show that's not exactly what was going on. So let's start there and maybe we can work our way forwards in time and show how this theme of occultism has, has wound its way to today. Yeah. So this is probably the thing I talk about the most because yeah. it's, it's the least well-known. And when people find out this information, they're pretty shocked and a lot of times in some disbelief. And it's like, wait, 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 I have to, I have to look into this because who's this random lady and why should I trust her and why should I believe her? And I knew when this book came out that the claims were going to be highly contested. So I was very methodical in citing all of my sources. Um, and I've done even a lot more since the book came out in that regard. But yeah, it was never this, <laughs> it was never the grassroots movement that everyone's been told it was. So if you do a man on the street and just ask a random person, what do you think life was like for women before they got the vote, right? You'll get a general answer of, oh, it was, it was slavish and they were oppressed and they had no freedom and they couldn't do anything and they were just stuck in their house. And I'll even hear things like people will assert, oh, women couldn't read. They weren't allowed to go to school. Uh, they could never have a job or own anything. That's really what people think. None of that is true. So I take a few chapters in the book to debunk that, but I think it's really important to understand why do people think that? Why does the general public have this idea that life for women prior to 1920 was, you know, nasty, brutish, and short to this kind of awful existence? And there is a very good reason. Um, all of the anti-suffrage movement, all of the kind of nasty truth about the early first wave feminist movement has been removed from textbooks. It has been literally removed from the historical record by women's studies departments at universities who gatekeep the information. And their uh, reasoning of why this is okay is something called standpoint theory. Now, standpoint theory is the idea that comes from Marxism. It was developed by a uh, just three women, primarily Sandra Harding and, and then two other ladies she was working with, um, who, of course, are all Rockefeller funded, uh, that they developed this Marxist theory that the truth, any idea of, a, of objective truth or that there's an objective historical timeline is not only problematic, but dangerous. And we either need to do away with the idea of historical truth altogether, or we need to radically redefine it. So standpoint theory says, Sure, the history looks a certain way, but that's only because you're not looking at it from the standpoint of the oppressed woman. So they bake all these presumptions into what an oppressed woman is, and then they literally rewrite the history to fit that narrative. Now, they think that this is perfectly justified because they're basing it on Marxist philosophy and postmodernism and lots of deep philosophical stuff. Um, I've got a 
podcast coming out in maybe six weeks with um, Joseph Everett from the What I've Learned YouTube channel, where we go like super deep on that. If in case anybody wants to, it's kind of nerdy. But basically, they felt justified in rewriting the history because they wanted it to be told how they wanted it to be told. Now, this isn't just me saying this. Uh, there's a professor who I believe he's passed now, but his name was Joseph C. Miller, and he's a historian. Most of his work centers around like uh, slavery history and things like that, but he also does quite a bit on feminism and suffrage. And he had a whole piece that he wrote which displayed this. He took the 13 mainline textbooks that have been used in uni universities over the last century or so, and he documented how early on there was a lot in the textbooks about the anti-suffrage movement, which people don't know was much bigger than the pro-suffrage movement. Yep. There were always far more women involved in anti-suffrage groups. They had membership in these groups. They would debate the suffragettes. Uh, there was far bigger participation among women in anti-suffrage groups than pro-suffrage groups. Uh, suffragists would actually block referendums, letting women vote on whether they wanted to vote. Like, can you imagine more irony than that? Uh, and the reason is because there were a couple referendums that were done uh, around the turn of the century in states like Massachusetts, where only 4% of women said they wanted to vote. And there were brilliant arguments and pamphlets and political tracts written by anti-suffrage women who had very valid and uh, wonderful arguments as to why they didn't want the vote. Um, and the suffragettes didn't like that. And they had a PR problem anyway, because a lot of their, a lot of the people who were at the forefront of the suffrage movement were highly unlikable. Uh, they tended to be uh, free love advocates prostitutes or unmarried women who never had children, things of that nature. So uh, they didn't want these referendums going on at all because it just really looked bad and it just made suffrage for women more and more unpopular. So they blocked those referendums. So the people saying women deserve to have the vote, but don't let them vote on whether they want the vote because they just don't know what's good for them, right? They don't, they just don't know what, what's really good for them. So we can't let them vote on it, but they yeah. should vote. You know, the, and it was crazy. And this is why uh, it was so unpopular for so long because people aren't that stupid. And they would look at this and be like, this is bizarre. Uh, so yeah, the, the reason people have the presumptions they do about history and even women who will go and get a gender studies degree or a women's studies degree will be like, Rachel, you're, but you're wrong. I paid $40,000 for a master's degree in women's studies. And, and that's not the information I got. How could you possibly have the correct information? And it's because I took years of digging into the actual primary sources through things like the Rockefeller archives, um, some of the stuff that's been preserved. There are lots of anti-suffrage tracts and pamphlets that have been preserved. And then people like Joseph Miller who have put that stuff out there. And then I also spent a really, uh, a really long amount of time reading the actual writings of the of the suffragettes and the feminist activists of the 1800s myself, which is why I don't feel bad about asking for money for my book. Because let me tell you, if you have to sit here and read a bunch of Alice Bailey and Annie Besant and Margaret Fuller and Mary Wollstonecraft, I'm taking one for the team, you guys. I read all that stuff so that you don't have to because it's terrible. It's awful. <laughs> it's really... Uh, 
is also really, really radical. So a lot of the stuff that you're seeing now that people think is new, like the gender abolition stuff, the um, you can transform into anything that you want to transform into stuff. This all comes out of this period in the 1800s when there were dozens, in fact, 80, over 80 experimental utopian socialist communities in the United States alone. And these people were experimenting with gender swapping and switching gender roles and um, things like vegan diets and the stuff that seems like it's new and recent. Oh, no, it was all going on back then in these communities. And what happened is during the Industrial Revolution, we got these extremely wealthy philanthropists, philanthropists, right? Mm -hmm. The Gilded Age billionaires of the world who had uh, nouveau riche money that people really hadn't had up until that time. And they saw an opportunity to use universities and then later entities like the United Nations to capture these institutions and use them for social engineering. And feminism was one of the main things they wanted to push. Now, why did they want to push that, right? That's, that's the second question people ask. Well, Rachel, but why? why? If women didn't want to be liberated from marriage and family and motherhood, then, then how did we get here? How did we get all of this, right? Well, if you were a wealthy Gilded Age industrialists who had, you know, most of these people went on to be senators or presidents or vice presidents or were closely entangled with the most powerful people of the time. Those people needed lots of cheap labor. You have all these factories expanding. You need a larger pool of cheaper labor. And at first they tried to do that with immigration, bringing in, you know, low wage immigrants, but there just wasn't really enough. They couldn't get enough fast enough. And there was some objection to mass immigration at the time. So they thought, well, we could get the women out of the home and into the factories. We can get lots of cheap labor, labor overnight. And then there were two other benefits to this. In 1913, the same little handful of people who funded suffrage were the same handful of people who went to the Jekyll Island Club in 1913 and created the Federal Reserve System, the income tax, and kind of snuck it through over the Christmas holiday in a very sneaky way. And they thought, okay, this is another great thing about feminism. If we can push women out of the home and convince them that they need to have their own money and they can have more income and, you know, you don't want to stay at home all day with kids. You want to go work in a factory. Doesn't that sound great, ladies? Well, now we've also doubled our income tax base overnight. And then the third benefit is, okay, if both parents are off working in the factories, where are the kids going to go? Well, they had just also built this compulsory public education system. And the public education system came out of the Prussian model, which was designed to create very good soldiers and very good factory workers who were conditioned to show up on time, you know, respond when the bell rings. You know, you take your break when the bell rings, you go to lunch when the bell rings. When the bell rings again, you come back to work and, and you're trained and conditioned to do these things for the state on behalf of the state. So if the moms are at work, we can say, oh, they have to go to the state-run public education system now where the state can indoctrinate the children with whatever views are conducive to state control, to expanding the welfare system. And this worked really well. If you take the number of out-of-wedlock births from 1960 to 2010 and plot them on a graph, they go up like this. Mm-hmm. It was only about 5% of children were born out of wedlock in 1960. By 2010, that number became 41%. 
Now, if you take a look at welfare spending and you plot that on a graph over the same time period, in 1960, it was about, I think, 50 billion. And then by 2010, it goes all the way up to 700 billion. So you have a 10 and a half time increase in out of wedlock births. You have a 12 time increase in welfare spending. So what that did was effectively replace fathers and husbands with the state, with the welfare state. And that's where we are now. So this was all done through institutional capture of, you know, using the university systems to kind of indoctrinate and rewrite the history and push certain social engineering things like feminism onto the public. And then I also talk about the CIA's involvement in culture creation and pushing feminism as well. It's, it's almost unbelievable to look at, except you documented it so thoroughly. And I've read other supporting material around it mm-hmm. where it's like, no, this, this really happened. This wasn't yeah. made up. This is our sanitized history that gets broadcast to us through the media. Too, so we believe that we know what happened before us. Yeah. Yeah. And so that we believe that all of these radical changes, I mean, people might think, why focus on feminism? Like we all know it's kind of, you know, most people think, oh, feminism kind of lame, but whatever, I guess it was good, right? So why like why get your panties in a twist about feminism, Rach? Well, because we have taken a social order that existed for all of human history up until 100 years ago. And in just one century, we've completely inverted that entire social order, turned it inside out, flipped it upside down. There is no other revolution in human history, not even, I mean, the Industrial Revolution enabled this, but even that in and of itself alone I would argue, did not have the same impact that feminism has had in completely dismantling the family unit, um, completely destroying the idea of what men are and what masculinity is, of what leadership is, of what governance is, of how children are raised, what a home is, what education looks like. I mean, just every area of your modern life is completely and totally affected by this revolutionary change that happened in such a short period of time. And it explains so much of the social ills that we're dealing with right now. We wonder why, why are 26% of adult American women on at least one prescription psychiatric medication? Why, when, when you look at the DSMs uh, prior to 1970, mental illness, depression, uh, self-deletion among children was extremely rare to the point that they barely put it in there because it was just so rare. And it's not that they didn't know of it or couldn't diagnose it. No, we've had psychiatry and psychology for longer, about as long as we've had feminism. It's actually gone up due to a lot of these changes, this complete instability that children are growing up in. And really that's my main motivation. My main motivation for doing this is uh, because it's heartbreaking when you look at the statistics of what's going on with kids and how they're being raised, the risks they're exposed to because women don't think that kids need their father anymore. Women don't think they need a husband anymore. And we think that you can just raise kids however, and you know they'll grow up fine and they'll survive and it'll be great. But broken children grow up to be broken adults who don't know how to live. So a lot of the societal decay we're dealing with is a direct result of this. One of the famous quotes in the New Age world, I don't know who originated it, is it's, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So that's something yeah. that they say. And what they're, what they're trying to say by that is that 
you know, patriarchy is the sick part and we have to move towards this kind of like feminist kind of ideal, feminist environmentalist ideal. Yeah. And so to actually, the way that you lay it out, it's like, no, the feminist environmentalist ideal is the sick part that we're just trying. If, it's, if we just get 100% of the way there, then it'll be fine, right? Mark right. of a scam, right? We need to go back the other direction. But it seems so, it, it's that emotional hold, that emotional interpretation of history that women were so enslaved and oppressed and so held down and so disrespected for every, for every century prior to 1900 that it's unthinkable for people. And, and you, the title of the book is Occult Feminism. And I, there's, I wonder if you can go into a little bit of the occult aspects because yeah. I, I, it's hard not to see black magic at the root of all of this. Yes, exactly. So especially if you've come out of the new age, people who have like a new age background, they grasp onto what I'm talking about really fast. Yeah, I lived um, it. Yeah, they're like, oh, I, this ties together all the dots for me. Yeah. Um, the, the title of the book kind of has a twofold meaning. The first one's the most obvious that a lot of these women uh, had these beliefs because they had this underlying occultic esoteric belief structure of some kind. So a lot of the women were theosophists, they were spirit mm -hmm. mediums, they were fortune tellers, they were, um, a lot of them came out of Crowleyan circles. Uh, many of them were into like the Eastern mystery religions or hermeticism, the golden dawn, things like that. The other reason I called it occult feminism is because there is actually literally a secret hidden history uh, to feminism that's been tucked away and obscured by these women's studies departments who only want it to be portrayed in a certain light. And Susan B. Anthony herself, who wrote her own self-glorifying four-volume puff piece about the history of women's liberation, because of course she's, she saw herself as being the hero of it, so she wanted this documented. She says right in the first chapter of the first volume that if it had been up to women, uh, women's liberation would have never happened. The vote would have never passed. And she said, the reason for this isn't so much, like you might think, oh, they're brainwashed to like their captivity or something. But she said, it's not so much that. It's really that they're actually too happy. Their lives are too nice. They have all this provision and protection under male suffrage that they don't want to lose. They uh, have a privileged place in society as mothers where they're well-respected and they don't have to deal with a lot of the harsh realities of life that men do. Of course, you know, life throughout history was tough for both sexes in different ways. It's not that everything was always roses, but I'm saying, you know, comparatively, her analysis was women have it too good. They can, they can go to school if they want to. Uh, New England women had a 90% literacy rate by 1750. So if you're under this impression that they weren't allowed to read or write or go to school, that's completely false. Women have dominated education and literacy for about three centuries in the Western world. Uh, and, and she said, if it's up to them, they'll never do it. And the other reason is they're very conservative. The women at the time tended to be less revolutionary and, less, uh, and more conservative than the men. And this is because they wanted a stable society to raise children in. They wanted a nice, clean parked for their children to play in. They wanted churches. They wanted community. They wanted um, peace. You know, they wanted this nice, a stable, healthy society to raise children in. And they don't like all this wild revolution stuff. They don't like the idea of free love, which was very tied in with suffrage. You know, you had people like Victoria Woodhull who had like a prostitution ring that she used to 
spy on uh, Wall Street and rig the stock market with, uh, and a lot of other characters like that that women didn't want to be associated with. Women felt they had the moral high ground because they weren't a political voting bloc. They said, we are not partisan. We don't have to pick the red team or the blue team, the right wing or the left wing. We can be concerned with higher moral questions that transcend politics, and we don't want to lose that moral high ground. So Susan B. Anthony said, you can't leave it up to them. They're never going to go for it. We have to get the men, the wealthy industrialist men who have a stake in this, to push it and to fund it and to kind of force it. And she was fine with that because her her idea was eventually the women will get with the program. They'll become more progressive. Uh, they'll, they'll start to see patriarchy as oppressive. And she was right about that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. She was right about the fact that over time we can probably use propaganda and and um, you know just push this to the point that women will begin to to have these ideas and agree with us. It took a while though. A lot of people don't know that when suffrage was first passed, very few women voted. They really had no interest. They saw politics as kind of dirty business, which it kind of is. And uh, it wasn't until the late 80s, I believe, that women became the biggest voting block and now vote in larger numbers than men do. So the occult stuff kind of has a twofold meaning, but the reason it's at the root of the ideology, and you see this going all the way back to ancient times. So the book starts there. The book starts way back in like ancient Sumer with goddess worship and temple prostitution and follows it through like the Middle Ages and the Renaissance a little bit. And then we get to the Protestant Revolution in the re- in the West, and then the you know the French Revolution, the American Revolution, this whole revolutionary period that came along with the Age of Reason, which was based on kind of rejection of church authority, rejection of government authority, rejection of hierarchy altogether. You know this revolutionary spirit spirit that bore Marxism and and all of these esoteric religions coming into the West when they hadn't really They've always kind of been there, but they never dominated before. So it kind of just, it's wonderful if you're a feminist, right? If you've been convinced of this women's oppression narrative, you do look at Christianity and go, God, the father, well, who says? So you have like Ariana Grande with songs like, you know, God is a woman, or you have all Mm -hmm. these vengeful, wrathful pop singer girls, uh, you know, talking about female empowerment and women's sexual liberation and sexual power. And that's not, it's not a coincidence. It's because underlying that is this idea that women should be the divine ones, that there's this yeah. divine goddess, uh, mother earth thing, which is why you always see veganism tied in with the feminism, right? Like why, how come all the girls go off to university and they go in normal and they come out blue haired vegan feminists? Well, this is why, because they're convinced of this kind of esoteric Gnostic principle that mother earth and nature is Edenic and good, right? And that it's the male demiurge figure, it's the toxic masculinity, it's the inherent violent nature of men that then comes in and exploits the animals and exploits the women. And and so what's the answer to this? Well, you kind of see it in the Barbie movie, which just came out, right? Which is this idea that when the women run everything, it's a utopian world where everything is perfect. There's no death. There's no decay. There's no corruption until the patriarchy comes in. And then it becomes stupid and silly and violent and brutish and dumb and nothing works, right? 
And so in order to restore that Edenic natural state, we have to return to the goddess, which is where you see like the psychedelic movements of the 70s and 80s coming in with Terrence McKenna saying, we have to return to the goddess. You know, uh, just take psychedelics until all your boundaries dissolve and then, you know, submit to the divine feminine and then we'll have world peace, right? And I've written a couple of pieces that take some time to dispel this myth that women are more benevolent with power than men are because it's completely not supported in any of the statistics we have. So when women are in charge of, say, a juvenile prison or a women's prison, or any other instance where women do have something of a monopoly on force, they're every bit as much likely as men to exploit that and abuse it, if not more. And I have some theories on why that is. But yeah, it's just this anti-Christian, kind of the Abrahamic religions altogether, you could argue. But since I'm an Orthodox Christian, I mainly see it as this like, rebellion against God the Father is really what it is at the heart of it. And that's why all of the other esoteric and occultic religions are so appealing to feminists. They love the idea of vengeful goddesses who, you know, have men's heads around their necks like the goddess Kali does, or they love the idea of Lilith, this vengeful spirit that haunts men in their sleep and, and you know, is a succubus. They like these vengeful female goddess tales. It's a great like empowerment motif for them that's really attractive. That's why if you go on TikTok, hashtag witch talk, mm-hmm. oh, you'll find all the stuff I'm talking about. Or you go to Instagram, same thing, witchstagram, hashtag, you'll find women doing all kinds of rituals with crystals and all kinds of other uh, kind of gross things that we probably don't want to talk about. But yeah, they love this wrathful goddess revenge porn fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they believe that they're cosmic victims. That's the feminist yeah. theology, right? Exactly. And so, and that, le- that legitimizes the violence, which, and, and women, I, I, women and men have different senses of honor. Maybe you can speak about this. Men have a sense of honor and that they won't actually commit violence against a woman unless they're really furiously angry and completely uncalibrated jerks to begin with. Right. Women don't seem to have a problem committing violence against men and other women. They don't seem to have the same moral constraints on them. I don't fully understand that, not being a woman myself, but it shows up in this feminist literature and Susan B. Anthony like looking actively looking down on women in a way that she would accuse the men of doing. Right. right? Oh, they can't think for themselves. Like that's okay if Susan B. Anthony says it, but it's not okay if a man says that. Like, how does that work? I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. So you're, you're always going to run into this cognitive dissonance in feminism. And that's honestly why I believe they go crazy as they get older. You can't mm. hold, you can't hold opposing worldviews like that and constantly be trying to reconcile them without kind of losing your marbles. But I think the reason we see this uh, willingness in, in women to use violence, to, and if you're not aware of the statistics, folks, the most recent uh, Substack article I wrote uh, goes over this in detail. And I, I think, you know, my theory is that men from a very young age, through rough and tumble play with their dads when they're little kids, or with each other or with older brothers or bigger boys when they're little kids, they learn early on that they can do damage. That it, mm-hmm. even unintentionally, if they get a little out of control, they lose their temper or they get carried away oh, shoot, I didn't mean to like make my friend's mouth bleed. I better, you know, I need to learn to keep a wrap on this in some kind of way. 
And then also men are kind of just held to certain boundaries because men exist and work together within a hierarchy. So men on a construction site or men in a bar fight will quickly sort out the pecking order, right? Of who who can get away with what and who uh, shouldn't probably challenge the other. So men are much more used to understanding where those boundaries are and that there are consequences if they overstep them. Whereas women, we're kind of... uh, we're kind of kept away from that for the most part because women don't work together in a hierarchy. We don't have like a hierarchical order, really. It's more about cooperation and child rearing and community building, but also competition in trying to get the best mate. So, and then we don't get this like, you know, physical play as much when we're kids. We're better at sitting still and being quiet in a desk and doing our homework, which is why (laughs) girls do so much better in a public school setting than boys do. Um, So I don't think women experience those boundaries. And I think that's why we saw this phenomenon over the last 10 years of there's an Antifa rally and then the Patriot prayer guys show up and you'll see some girl in flip-flops and leggings go up to this six foot two veteran and like punch him in the face right and you're like what was she thinking and it's yeah it's because they grow up with this like you said they're a cosmic victim they deserve cosmic justice and then they've never experienced the consequences of what happens you just walk up and punch a six foot two man in the face so i think that's the reason why when women do get power they don't i don't think they're they're as acquainted with the consequences of abusing the power so that's why you see so many stories of like teachers grooming their 13-year-old student, you know, female teachers grooming a 13 or 12-year-old student, and they get a slap on the wrist. Whereas if it's a man doing that to a 12 or 13-year-old girl, he gets the book thrown at him. Kind of different. We have different um, standards for that sort of stuff. It's very well known statistically that women get far less punishment for the same crimes as men. It's just, and that's usually a male judge, you know, who's going easier on the woman because Men are, I believe, inherently benevolent. I don't think they're inherently abusive or inherently oppressive. I think they're inherently benevolent for the most part. Evil exists among people of both sexes, but it's not that men are particularly prone to evil or abuse of power. There's just nothing in any of the data I've ever looked at that really supports that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're both sinners in need of a savior in different ways. And, you know, the majority... The vast majority of men are benevolent towards women and benevolent in, in general, while still being, of course, sinners and, and depraved and all, of, and all of those things. We can speak about our social relations as generally wishing good for women and not themselves being in, desirous of oppressing women. I, I don't know that society we would even have functioned as long as it did if that was the case, nor would you have had women looking forward to their wedding day. How, how many centuries? Like, oh, I can't wait to get married. It's like, why can't you can't wait to get married, but men are these horrible oppressors? Like, right. well, how does that work? Right. And this wonderful, modern, technologically advanced world that men built that gives women the illusion that they can be in charge of it and don't need the men to begin with is built and maintained by men in large part for our benefit. I mean, I suppose men didn't have to, you know, automate all housework. if they really hated their wives and just wanted them to be enslaved and suffering, I guess they'd say, wash the clothes by hand, you harpy, you know, or whatever. But yeah, it's this, it takes a lot of suspension of 
disbelief to think to yourself that throughout all of human history, with all the love songs and poems we have dating back to ancient times of men expressing their willingness to do anything for the woman they love, uh, talking about their reverence for their own mothers, their love for their daughters, that really what they were doing was just waiting for their first chance to abuse some ladies. They just wake up in the morning and they're like, how can I, how can I hurt a woman today? Right? So it's just, like I said, upon just a little bit of um, investigation, these things fall apart very easily. But if men do it, they're just instantly dismissed and accused of misogyny. Uh, So I really think that ironically, just like how they needed men to push feminism on everybody. I think it's going to take like me and at least a few other women kind of standing up and being rational enough to actually examine these ideas and their outcomes and say, "Mm, it was a fun experiment, but let's not. It's time for this to end. I think we're done with this now. I think that's what it's going to take, ironically, to kind of dismantle it. And uh, I'm hoping that's the case because otherwise the historic pattern is you need a collapse. That's the unfortunate part that I don't want to see because you might have noticed that in a natural disaster or a calamity of some kind, suddenly there's no feminists. When you're trapped in the floodwaters waiting to be rescued, you're not going, boy, I hope the feminists show up and save me. Or if you're in the burning building hoping that a fireman comes to rescue, you're not like, gosh, when's the gender studies department going to come and rescue me from this fire? You know, So uh, we see this historical trend. Um, Professor Edward Dutton was on my show talking about this um, because this is kind of what he researches, these historical trends of civilizational, you know, uh, peak and decline. And he said, whenever you get to the peak, it kind of, the feminist stuff starts to come about. And inevitably, that's the biggest sign that there's going to be an imminent collapse soon because it doesn't work. Unfortunately, ladies, no matter how much no matter how much you cast spells with your crystals, men are always going to have the monopoly on physical force. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, think of it this way. The way I think of it is prior to women's liberation, there was a bit of a natural balance of power between the sexes in this way. Men have the balance of uh, monopoly of force, right? Men are bigger, they're stronger, they can do things physically that women can't do. But historically, women have been twice as successful at reproducing. So through all the genetic studies we've done, 80% of women who've ever survived past infancy have been able to reproduce. Only 40% of men have ever historically been able to pass on their genetic material. That's one big way that women have a tremendous amount of powers that were kind of the gatekeepers of sex and reproduction. So what we did when we made women equal in politics and finance and governance and all of these other things is we kind of threw off that natural balance that was there. And now we have, you know, an entire family court system that's completely biased against men. We have something of an institution of marriage, although I don't think what we have now is really marriage. It's just a state certificate that it's a contract that's easier to break than your cell phone contract. And when it does get broken, 70 to 80% of the time, it's the woman breaking it. So then she takes half the man's resources. She takes the children. She usually gets custody and child support. And then the man has to start over with zero 
right, in, in the middle of his life. And then nobody uh, cares if the children are deprived of their father because the woman has to be happy. It doesn't matter who has to suffer for mommy to be happy and like live, laugh, love and find herself and whatever it is. Now, there's sometimes that divorce is warranted. Even the church has always historically had certain exceptions for divorce, but it had to be just cause and it had to be something serious that couldn't be worked through, like abandonment, addiction that was not, you know, successful in being treated or serious abuse, something like that. I think that's fine. What I'm not in favor of is no-fault divorce, which is just, I woke up unhappy and I don't feel sexy anymore. So sorry, kids, but the family is over and daddy's out, you know, and and mommy's new boyfriend is going to come and and live with you guys. That is what I'm so against because of the statistical rates of abuse among children. It's about 10 and a half times higher, the the risk of abuse when you don't have your biological dad in the house. So. That's my other big beef with feminism. It promised women and children additional safety, right? They, this, you guys have to remember historically that suffrage is happening at the same time that prohibition is coming about and the women's temperance movement is really picking up steam. And there was a ton of propaganda, always propaganda, right? Ton of propaganda that all the men were alcoholics right? All the men are alcoholics who just drink all day and come home and beat their wife. Now that wasn't true either, but it was pushed because of the temperance movement and certain uh, powers behind that that wanted wanted prohibition. So it was also co-opted and used in feminism to say, you can't take the risk, you know, with these men, they could become alcoholics and they're just going to beat you. And so you need to be free and liberated and have your own money and have your own career. And it turns out that statistically now we can look over all the data. The national incident study is conducted by the government about every 15 to 20 years or so, 10 to 15 years. There's been four of them since 1978. And what they do, they take data from all of the organizations across the country who deal with like battered women, abused children. So it would be places like um, women's shelters, uh, child protective services, charity organizations that help battered women, et cetera, et cetera. And they collect all of this data from different counties all over the country to uh, try to analyze how much abuse is going on, who's doing the abusing, who's being abused, what context it happens under, right? We have 45 years of these studies now, and all of them show that the safest place for children is with both biological parents, not even close. No other living situation even comes close being as safe as that. And for women, cohabitating with a partner is far more dangerous as far as risk of abuse than living with your married husband. If you live with your husband you're married to, your rate of abuse is the lowest of any other living situation. And we see the highest domestic violence rates among lesbians who are cohabitating. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea that men are the threat, that men are the risk, that it's just too risky to be married, it's too risky to give men this power, is just baloney. I mean, we have a century of evidence now that we can look over and see that it's just not true. So all these promises that were made weren't kept. Feminism didn't deliver on any of it. So if the ideological roots are bad, if the philosophical and religious roots are bad, and the outcomes are bad, 
I'm not sure what the argument is in favor of pushing even more feminism, which is what we're seeing right now. Like I said, with the Barbie movie and all these other, you know, all these other cultural pop culture things that are really being pushed. And, you know, you have every NGO, you have the United Nations, all these uh, private public partnership philanthropy uh, think tank places just pushing more and more and more women's empowerment, women's leadership summit, you know, uh, more feminism, more reproductive rights. And we are seeing a pushback now, but the still these mainstream entities that do all the public policy steering are just pushing it heavier and heavier. And so all I'm trying to do is kind of present the argument against it and say, wait, uh, nothing is lining up here. Why are you still pushing this? What's the agenda? Men, stop me when this sounds familiar. Since 2020, you felt isolated from friends, family, and coworkers around you. You've felt their beliefs and practices shift dramatically. You've had to avoid uncomfortable topics, and maybe as part of that, your beliefs have begun to fall more in line with biblical truth and less with your upbringing or culture. So you feel yourself separating from the men around you, and that's left you on your own. But you don't know where to go. Because you're looking for more than just camaraderie. You want brotherhood, and more than brotherhood, fellowship, and more than fellowship, discipleship that helps you grow as a man. You've had that before in pieces maybe, or maybe you didn't realize that you needed it, but now the need is real and present, and you're trying to do it on your own, and that's not working like you'd hoped. Enter my new men's group, The Council. This new monthly membership group is designed to help bring those missing pieces back into your life with a network of believing brothers around the country and ultimately the world. But The Council isn't like other men's groups. It's not a clubhouse. It's a place for dignity, excellence, and Christian fellowship. It's a space for men to draw strength from, to bring those virtues back into their lives. So if you're a man 18 years or older and a Bible-believing Christian at any stage of life looking to grow in strength and virtue, the council is the place for you. There are a number of member benefits I'm very proud of, including regular Bible studies and online meetups, the ability to send me questions for my Ask Me Anything episodes. You can listen live as I record my podcasts in real time, plus get discounts on my revamped membership program coming soon, and I'm planning for much more. The group is barely a couple weeks old, and I'm thrilled with how the men are coming together and the diversity of backgrounds and interests represented in the room. So if you want a men's group that puts God and Christ at the center, the council is for you. There might be a man in there you can learn from or a man who can learn from you. And if you'd like to know more, visit renofmen.com council. Once again, go to renofmen.com slash counselor to learn more about the group and how you can be a part of it. Well, the agenda is to kill God the Father, right? That's that is that is, I mean, that's that's the thing that I really appreciated about your book is that you didn't whitewash the history of feminism or varnish it or say, well, they had some good points here. It's like, no, this is an occult, anti-God antichrist movement and has been from the start. In fact, two weeks ago, I had uh, Zach Garris, who's a Presbyterian pastor. He wrote the book Masculine Christianity. And oh, yeah. excellent, excellent book. Yeah. Um, and he, in the, in the first part of the book, talks about how feminism was a radical anti-family, anti-Christian movement from the start. And yeah. that ties into prohibition and all of that. Like suffrage and prohibition were linked because it was positioning men as these oppressors, alcoholics. And so we have to cleanse society from the female perspective. And that's what Nancy Piercy talks about in her new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Like 
this unquestionable era of American history is beginning to be questioned. And it, it yeah. needs to happen. It's the sacred cow. Yes, you're exactly right. And just just nobody knows it, right? I mean, they're starting yeah. to now because of all the people you just mentioned. And there's others, you know, uh, Janice Fiamenko has done some yep. good stuff on this. I, I didn't even know most of these people until after my book came out. And I'm kind of glad because I'm like, I got to do my own unique perspective and my own work on it. But now that I'm seeing all the work of these other people and how we are all finding the same things, the same trends, the same ideas, it kind of does validate what I had found. And I'm sure that they probably feel the same way. So it's like, I'm very glad that this stuff is starting to be questioned because like I said, um, it's bad enough for women and it's bad enough for men. But it just, when I see what's happening to children, it's like, they're completely unprotected because mom's at work all day. Dad's cut out of their lives more often than not. And so they're, they are being exposed to every horrible ideology out there. Every destructive force that wants them to destroy themselves is just coming at them right through their phone, you know, and, um, and there's nobody there to kind of provide any pushback because <laughs> they're in a state institution most of their life. And then they're on their phone the rest of the time. So where's going to be the stabilizing force or the protective force? There isn't one anymore. And if I were the demonic, that's exactly what I would want. You know, that's exactly what I'd be going for. Remove the people with the most vested interest in protecting their offspring so that we have access. And you see this in a lot of the rainbow Skittles movement stuff. The um, I'm trying to, just in case, mm -hmm. I don't know where you'll put this. So uh, the- uh, YouTube. Okay, yes. So the Skittles rainbow people love this <laughs> idea. They love the idea of, oh, you don't need dads. And, and what's a family anyway, right? Um, and a lot of the feminist uh, philosophers of the 70s were really big into this idea of family with anyone except your dad, right? Yeah. Anyone except a kinship, kinship building outside of the biological family. Um, my next book has a lot in it on like the Russians and the Eastern Bloc communists and how feminist ideology was pushed there mm -hmm. by the same people, funded by the same people, but with a slightly different twist, with a little bit of a different ideology pushed because in the West, they used more of a liberal democratic kind of philosophy. And there they used like straight up Marxist collectivism. Mm -hmm. And the Eastern feminists like Alexandra Kolontai, who was the first uh, Bolshevik female um, head of state and diplomat in 1917, was already writing literature about how she foresaw a future without biological families, mm -hmm. without uh, parents, that all the children would be raised communally with no idea who mom was or who dad was. And the reason is because all of the bourgeois capitalist stuff she didn't like was passed down through like, you know, paternal lineage. So men, when they get a family, when they get a wife and they have children, they work really hard at accumulating resources to pass down as a legacy to their offspring for their future generations. So uh, to preserve their, you know, from a strictly atheist worldview, you know, you would see it as passing your genetic material into the future. From a Christian worldview, we see it more as like a, leaving a patriarchal legacy of provision and protection for your future generations. Um, and she didn't want any of that. She said, 
everyone's allegiance should be to the state. And fathers get in the way of that. So they have to be removed. So the first things she did as the Commissar of Social Welfare in Russia was to make abortion not only illegal for the first time in history anywhere in the world, but to make it paid for in a state Russian hospital up until the time of birth, you know, all the way up to 40 weeks or whatever, with no questions asked, just free state state abortion, uh, paid state abortion. And then the other thing was she made marriage no longer a sacrament of the church, just a legal a legal uh, license you would file with the state that could be dissolved at any reason for any time. So they had no-fault divorce. Now, when Stalin came to power, about a decade after that, they had three abortions for every one live birth in Russia. Their population was absolutely imploding and they had just been through World War I and a great famine. So Stalin said, we can't have this. There won't be Russia in another decade if we keep this going. So he did temporarily put a kibosh on that. And that's why, I mean, but now still to this day, Russia has some of the highest abortion rates in the world. Uh, But this is the result, no matter how this, no matter how this ideology is disseminated, you end up with the same result. And that's because it's the same spiritual entities behind this agenda, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, the, the things you're talking about are woven throughout that presentation that I gave back in February. Um, and also I read the book um, Libido Dominandi by E. Michael Jones, yes. yeah, who spends a lot of time on Alexander Kalantai and, and this whole feminist evolution beginning in the French Revolution. That's just, it's insane yeah. to actually look at history for what it is from the primary source documents and not simply accept the mainstream narrative, the collegiate narrative, or what we just kind of take for granted through the media to actually look at what these people said, what they believed and what they caused in the countries that they were allowed free reign in. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, standpoint theory hasn't just, they didn't just leave it to feminism. It started as strictly a feminist narrative. And then, uh, Sandra Harding, who had kind of invented it, she had a biology degree. So she worked really hard to get it pushed into the sciences as well. And so like James Lindsay has talked a lot about Mm -hmm. how standpoint theory has destroyed science. Like if you want to know, like people are wondering, how can, how can the mainstream prestigious science institutions be the ones pushing this uh, transformer stuff, right? Saying that you can just chop off parts like Mr. Potato Head and swap them out. What kind of science is this? Well, that's because standpoint theory infiltrated the sciences as well. So now we no longer have any sort of objective science because that's toxic masculinity, right? That's that's white, yeah. straight male stuff. So we have to do even the hard sciences via standpoint theory, which of course doesn't work, but that's why everything is insane right now. Um, and there's lots of people who've done really big, like in-depth pieces on how standpoint theory ruined science. Like I said, James Lindsay, and I was just watching a really great YouTube video on it the other day that unfortunately, I can't remember who did it right now. But uh, yeah, this is, it's, it's this Gnostic kind of idea, right? That like, uh, the world is bad, society is bad. And so we have to escape it, and we have to destroy it, and we have to tear everything down. And, and then out of that, we'll build some utopia. And it's, it's never worked. It's never going to work. And it's not just because the ideas are bad. It's not just because utilitarian calculus doesn't actually work. <laughs> um, it's, it's because fundamentally this world is a spiritual battle. But like you said, um, it's, 
it's God the Father who is the one that loves us and wants to redeem us. And so all the other forces fighting against that are just going to cause more decay, more suffering, more problems. And that's where we are right now, especially in the West with so many people rejecting Christianity and having like these atheist worldviews. But really, there's no such thing as atheism. Even the staunchest atheists always have some kind of other underlying worldview for how things work that tends to be spiritual, whether they want to admit it or not. You see the roots of this rebellion really in Genesis, you know, where the serpent tempts, tempts Eve and ye shall be like God. Effectively, God's holding out on you. You can be God. And, and Paul yeah. says later that Adam wasn't tempted or deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. So you have this model right there in the very beginning in the garden where you had this women's rebellion and men's passivity. And then you run that out thousands of years and voila, here we are. And I guess the question the question that I'm sitting with is, yes, of course, men need to step forward, you know, to take, to take leadership. I think that's, that's the nature of everything I do. But men stepping forward doesn't mean automatically that women will step back, that, that right. these, these two things are not linked. So what, what can we do? What do you see that works? Because we, we had talked about um, rationality, you know, men, women being more rational, attempting to combat this. <laughs> Right. Is, I mean, does that actually, does that work? It doesn't not work, but is, can rationality combat irrationality? Um, well, here's kind of how I see it. So the, the domain of men, <clears throat> and this is the burden of men. Women have the burden of childbirth and child raising. It's never easy. It's the most valuable and fulfilling thing you'll ever do. But I've had five children and I'm not going to sit here and tell everybody, oh, it's just easy peasy. I took the easy life, you know, <laughs> and right. I didn't but I would never go back and change it. Like I, I'm super happy with you know my decision to do what I did in life. But for men, I think the burden is you guys have to always be the ones holding the boundaries. You have to be the ones who are always saying no to people. You know, I saw this with my husband when I really started to understand what men go through more is when we had four teen and preteen daughters at the same time. <laughs> Mm. We have four girls. So when they were all kind of between like nine years old and 19 years old, he would say every day, it doesn't matter what I do. Somebody's going to run to their room crying because daddy was mean. Even if he's not mean, it's just because he said no, right? He just, mm. he has to be the one who's always just going, no, sorry, no, sorry. No, you won't. No, you can't do that. No. And I'm the one that kisses the boo-boos and rubs your back and makes you feel better. Now I always back him up. That's why I think our kids have turned out so good because we're always on the same page. But if it were just me, I'd be so much more likely to give in all the time. They tug on my little heartstrings and I just want to say yes. But he knows it's his job and that he's responsible for telling them no when they need to be told no. And men have that responsibility society-wide to, to kind of put their foot down and say no. And what you just talked about with Adam in the garden it's the same thing that kind of happened with feminism. And I always say simps, simps are the ones that will be the death of all of us because it's this inclination to, men love women, right? Men do love women. You guys love us. There's something in you that does want to give us what we want and make us happy and see us smile. So men kind of want to give in. Um, and Adam kind of gave in because he wanted it's not because he, like you said, he wasn't deceived. 
he just didn't want to tell her no. And he wanted to go with her wherever she was going, which was the big mistake. And that's what happened with feminism. You got these men who are these, the wealthy industrialist billionaires of the golden age, the Gilded age are the same kind we have now, like the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk's who, you know, they always have some woman that's taking half their fortune and running off with another guy, or they have like, you know, Elon's got 10 kids with five different women or something. And they're not good at holding the line because they're kind of nerds who got really famous and wealthy because they're smart or because they were strategically placed in time and place. So yeah. <laughs> it's like a revenge of the nerds simp problem that we have, where if really powerful men given to women, you have this, this repeats in archetypes throughout all of history, like Samson and Delilah, right? It's always a man kind of giving into a woman that he really is into is always his big downfall. And I think the thing that's hard for men, that's their burden is going to be this idea of how do we firmly, but benevolently take back power and, and control for the most part in society. I know when women hear me say that it causes this knee jerk discomfort. And I know that when I say things like submit right? That word causes this knee-jerk discomfort and it's, it's conditioning. It's yes. normal. It's normal for you. If you're a woman hearing me talk this way to have this uneasy feeling in you when you hear me say these things, but you have to decondition this impulse that men having power or having um, control or being in authority is inherently bad. That's not the, the sex of the person with authority is not what makes it inherently bad. Um, as we just talked about men being benevolent and not inherently evil. So I think men's challenge is taking back the reins and being able to reinstitute the boundaries of the castle wall to keep society stable and make safe homes and places for children and women to live and say, we love you. You're great. We want what's best for you. And that's why we're no longer going to go along with this feminist stuff. We're just, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to be vengeful and wrathful, but we are going to take back our rightful place of, of authority and hierarchy as God has created us. And, th and they're going to have to, this is the choices you guys have. It's either going to happen the hard way or the much harder way, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So either the men decide enough of this experiment we're going to benevolently kind of take back the reins of authority as we should, or we're going to have a catastrophic collapse that will necessitate a strong man coming in and putting society back together. And that's never comfortable. That's usually pretty brutal. And that's what we will end up going back to if somebody doesn't kind of put the brakes on this soon, because you cannot have, a, there's a girl I debated that a clip with her went viral. I think it's got like half a million views or something now where she insisted to me that she and her feminist friends could get the power grid back up after like an EMP. I said, if there was like an EMP that took out the power grid completely, are you and mm. your girlfriends, your feminist girlfriends going to go out and like, you know, get the electric grid back up? And she was like, yeah, sure. Totally. We totally can. We have tools now. And every, the reason it went viral is because it was so absurd, right? People are going, this girl probably, you'd have to tell her to unplug it and plug it back in if her computer wasn't working, but she's going to go restore the power grid. Like, does she have any idea? Are they going to be putting up cell phone towers and launching satellites so that the cell phones are working again? No. So 
if the men don't do this, we're going to be in a situation where someone's going to have to do it. And that's not going to be fun for anybody. But yeah. it remains to be seen how it's going to go. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the complexifying factor of all this is that, you know, men built these institutions in order to make society more convenient, easy, these giant meta technologies mm-hmm. that manage everything for us. And all these institutions have now been captured by this ideology. And how can one man or even a group of men stand against these feminist captured, captured institutions? That seems to me to be the hinge point is that the, the institutions are now leveraged against the individual. And so what are, so we as men, we can take authority in our own homes, perhaps even yeah. in our own workplaces, but the, the time is the time is late to begin building institutions. Yes, you're totally right about that. Um, as far as that goes, I mean, having studied kind of the history of power dynamics and the ruling elite, uh, there's probably always going to be these powerful ruling elite who are antithetical to God and to God the Father. But there have been times in history where they've been put at, put back at bay, you know, where they've kind of mm-hmm. stuffed the toothpaste back in the tube, at least to the extent that we could have, you know, a pretty functioning society and more peaceful, uh, more benevolent times. Of course, you and I as Christians, we kind of know that there's never going to be an Edenic state again until the return of Christ and he restores right. everything. But um, I do tell people, though, that really, you know, it is possible as bad as the world is. There have been worse times. You know, there have been people who have had families and and had successful marriages and families and brotherhood and the church has survived incredible persecution throughout his history so it's possible this the situation we're in now is pretty dire but you know my husband and I have been able to do it and like you said on the individual level people can do that and to the extent that more and more people do uh the people around you notice that and they kind of go hmm you know, I, if it's a white pill for anyone, I do get a ton of emails and messages from women saying, you know, I was in uh, I was in university finishing law school and I had this nagging feeling for the last year that all I wanted to do was get married and have babies. And I knew everybody in my life wouldn't agree. But, you know, I quit law school and I got married and I'm staying home with my two year old and I'm pregnant again and I'm going to homeschool. And thank you so much for for making me feel okay about that. Thank you for giving me the courage to take that leap, even though I didn't feel safe about it because the people around me weren't supportive, but I couldn't be happier that I'm doing it. So that's why I think the Bible says that if you do what you're supposed to be doing, that's the best way to save the people around you. Because if they see you do it, they're more likely to do it. Um, And I do think there's hope, you know, there's always hope. We have hope in Christ. So uh, I think there's some good signs you're seeing, like, it's not that we agree with everything Andrew Tate says or his prescriptions right. for people or some of the, the red pill describes the problems really well. Yes. As a Christian, I don't always agree with the prescriptions, right? I'm not, I don't want men getting vasectomies at 20. Please don't Ugh. do that. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's a good sign that there's a lot of pushback. I think that men are looking for masculinity. I think women are looking for femininity. I think that if you allow women to be mothers, we have this incredible drive for motherhood. It's just that the culture beats it out of us from the time we are babies. And again, this Barbie movie opens with a sequence of little girls playing with baby dolls. 
in the opening sequence. It's like a spoof on 2001, uh, A Space Odyssey. And then they see Barbie, sexy Barbie, and they start bashing their baby dolls against the rocks, yeah. smashing the baby dolls because we want to play with Barbie now. She's sexy and has cool outfits and accessories. So I think if we can push back on that and tell women, hey, you know what? It's actually really fun and cool and awesome to be a mom. It's a totally valid life choice. You should give it a try. It's great. Uh, that goes a long way. And then I think if men who are, I know some people don't like the phrase, but let's just, because everyone knows what it means, high value men. If the high value men start rewarding virtue, chastity, um, motherhood, instead of big booby girls on webcams who are doing, you know, NPC or uh, ASMR or whatever stuff, uh, selling their bathwater to simps. If we start rewarding that behavior in women, you're going to see a lot more of it because women still will do whatever gets them the most attention from men. Attention is women's currency, more than money or handbags even, right? That's In fact, male attention is usually how they get the, the handbags or whatever the other status symbols are. But if the high value men kind of start making it like, ugh, you know, oh, you're a 304, no thanks. I, I would like this. 20-year-old church-going virgin who wants to be a mother. Uh, will it make all the feminists mad? Yes, it will. But will you see more women start to act that way and hold those values? Yes, and it's twofold. It's because they do want the attention. They do want the best man. That's our primary biological imperative, and they do want to reproduce. Most of us want to be mothers. Historically, there's been a tiny percent of women who are just not built for it or don't want it, that's fine. They've always been there. They can go be nuns. They can be school moms. They can, you know, be academics or whatever they want to be. But most women do want to be moms. They do. So if you, if you just make that the cool thing again, I think some of the men who are gaining this influence could do that theoretically. I don't know if it'll happen. I don't have a crystal ball, but I think if the really desirable men suddenly start talking about the virtues they want to see in women and what they're looking for and what they think is should be rewarded, you'll see more of that. But as long as having a million Instagram followers because you're posting pictures of yourself in a thong gets you the most attention, that you're going to see a lot of girls do that. Do you have time for just one more quick question? Yeah, sure. um, okay. So, so what I see is the as the wild card in all this is sexual liberation that mm -hmm. sexual liberation was the liberation of women's sexuality from the constraints of marriage. You created all of this supply, let's say, of sex, and then it creates all of this demand, right? And so you have men that are more tempted by sex outside of marriage than sex inside of marriage, along with all the married sex is unsatisfying propaganda, et cetera, which is documented to be not true. So part of this is, is reigning women's sexuality back in. And that's goddess worship, right? Goddess worship is inevitably yeah. tying as you talk to it as you talked to, uh, talked to that earlier. So you have men essentially worshiping the goddess of women's sexuality, which is direct contradiction to the God, the father. So, and someone said on Twitter, I think it was on Twitter, that we need to bring women shaming women for unchaste behavior back. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I do agree with it and I get in terrible trouble for it all the time. Oh, good. Uh, That's what we do here. You might know from talking to me now that I'm actually a pretty nice person. I think I'm a pretty <laughs> nice person. If you yeah. just follow me on Twitter, though, you probably think I'm a little bit mean. And it's because uh, I, because of the nature of that app, I am often kind of pushing back, slapping back, if you will, against mm. these types of women who 
want this sexual liberation. And why? Because it's their main source of power. And no, they don't want to give it up. So the only way they're going to give it up is if there's some shame involved. And again, people hear the word shame and there's a knee-jerk reaction to be like, she's bad, she's me. You shouldn't shame people. However, always in society, always, we are either incentivizing or disincentivizing certain behaviors by whether we see it as a positive thing and applaud it or whether we see it as a negative thing and shame it to certain degree. That's why there's all this talk about Lizzo and uh, healthy at every size and body shaming stuff. And it's like, it's kind of the same idea. I, I wish we could all live in this cozy kindergarten world where we can tell everyone that everything's fine, everything's permissible, you know, every life choice is equally valid, every worldview is equally valid, but that's not reality. That's not how things work. And the result of trying to do that is you have 500 pound women who are physically incapacitated by the time they hit 30 and they're probably not going to last past 40. I don't think that's nice. I don't think that's nice at all. So I look at this the same way. I have gotten messages from women in their 50s and 60s who say, I'm listening to your audiobook right now and I'm bawling my eyes out because I fell for this stuff and now I'm too old and it's too late and I can't go back and I don't know what to do. And it's heartbreaking. Like I'll get teared up and upset reading, reading these messages from women. So I'm like, better that they get mad at me now for saying to them, hey, before you post another booby picture or another OnlyFans video, think about what your children, you know, if you have children someday, are they going to see that when they're 50? Are you going to be proud of this later? You know, to try to get them to think of it that way to a little bit of shame is a good thing, right? If somebody steals, we shame them. If somebody murders someone or um, our words, someone, we shame that because it's bad behavior. It's bad for the victim. It's bad for the perpetrator. It's bad for society. So there are behaviors that objectively, I believe, should be shamed to some degree. Now, this doesn't mean that reformed women should be treated like garbage. This is another thing I disagree with. I don't think a high value man is obligated to marry you just because you reformed either, you know? So if you used to do OnlyFans and you have a body count sky high to the moon, but now you're 30 and your biological clock is ticking and you've decided to come to Christ and change, that's great. But it doesn't mean you're automatically entitled to yeah. like some really high status guy. You might have to settle for Joe the plumber, who is a really nice person, but maybe he's five foot nine. You know, like <laughs> you still have a great life. You will still have a wonderful Christian life, a great family, a wonderful man. But this six foot six figure six pack stuff has got to go for one thing. Um, and the other thing is we shouldn't be encouraging women to do things that actually encourage their physical, mental and spiritual destruction. Uh, telling women to open themselves up sexually is extremely dangerous for so many reasons. Uh, it leads to, you know, a lot of women having abortions they regret later, to uh, getting them, like we discussed earlier, gets them into situations where they're more likely to encounter abuse uh, or harm. It, it destroys their ability to pair bond. It destroys their self-esteem. And then they hit the wall at 35 and they've got another 40, 50 years of life that they now have to live with that history and that past and all that damage and they have to try to heal from it. Again, encouraging that is not nice. The nice thing is trying to 
talk some sense into them and shape them a little bit now while they're young and they can maybe turn it around. And I would love to see like for my daughters growing up uh, that maybe they won't have to do what I did, which is fight the entire culture, which tells them, take your clothes off, uh, stick your butt out and take a picture, you know, uh, let boys have sex with you when you're really young, you know, uh, all these things have do polyamory, have multiple boyfriends. Uh, do stuff with girls, all these things that are encouraged in the culture that I know will destroy them. And they're a rebellious teenager going, why do I have to have the strict mom? You know, why do I have to have the parents that are always telling me no? But now they're 20 and 22, my oldest. And they've both like multiple times said to me, I used to think that you were like the strict, boring mom. And I'd always be like, I wish I could have fun like my friends do with their mom. But I'm so glad that you didn't. I'm so like, thank you so much for not raising me like that. Thank you for caring enough to tell me no and, and try to, you know, not let the culture raise me because I'm seeing what it's doing to my friends or like older ladies that they know at work or something like that. And they're very happy that they had parents that cared enough to tell them no. So, uh, it's not nice to encourage women in everything they do. It's not nice or kind. It's not, it's not being nice. Telling people to do things that destroy them isn't nice. So we need to push back against this. It's okay to be 500 pounds stuff. We need to push back against the promiscuity and all these life choices that we know. Like we, like I said, we have tons of data. We have our own eyeballs. We can look around and see what, what this produces. It's not good for young women. So I always say, who's really the one that cares about women? Is it, the, is it you feminists who are telling them to do all this god-awful self-destructive stuff that also, by the way, prevents them from ever having salvation and, and reconciling with God? Because when you tell young women, you don't need humility, you don't ever have to apologize. You are perfect the way you are. You don't need saving. You don't need forgiveness. You are basically putting a giant wall between them and God. You're putting a giant wall between them and their salvation. So I think it is not me who is the one that's mean and doesn't care about women. I think it's the feminists who are destroying them in every dimension of their lives. Yeah, there's a real there's a real hesitation that a lot of people have to tell women what they can and can't do with their bodies. My body, my choice, right? If I yeah. want to put a baby in it and take a baby out of it, and I want to put in whatever I want, eat food, whatever, it's just like... Yeah. We can't tell women, you can't tell women anything because women are cosmic victims. It's it's the goddess worship thing. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it also kind of comes, it's definitely that. That's the spirit and the root of where all of it comes from. And then we have the extra complicating factor of being American and yeah. being American and, and believing in Americanism, which I went through my libertarian phase in my twenties. Uh, when you have this idea that authority is across the board bad, and that liberation is across the board good, and that, hey, man, just you do you, just do you, bro. Like this idea <laughs> saturates the American spirit as well. And so we're partially fighting that. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. Like I understand where that comes from because I was there at a certain point in my life too. But the truth of the matter is that not all things are permissible and not all things are good for you and not uh, you you need God the Father there to tell you no and tell you to repent so that he can forgive you and restore you. And you need your father there in your life and you need your husband there in your life to 
put down boundaries for you when maybe you can't always do it yourself. You know, women, we have hormone cycles. We have uh, a lot of emotions going on. We tend to be, it's a good thing. It's a good thing as mothers. You want us to be more empathetic. You want us to be more sensitive uh, because, you know, if you're going to have a baby attached to you for two straight years, whether whether you've slept or not and all of these things, you want them to uh, have these instincts. That's a good thing. But the men are there to protect us uh, when we can't really do it ourselves, when we're too hormonal to think straight or too sleep deprived to think straight or, we're, or we get our heartstrings tugged at. That's why marketing is another big part of the piece of the puzzle is Edward Bernays with his invention of marketing. You know, he was kind of famous for pushing smoking on women, mm -hmm. but he developed marketing out of psychoanalysis and psychology. He was related to Sigmund Freud and like a lot of the other psychoanalysis guys that came out of the early 20th century. And they figured out that if they could put the control of most of the household spending in the hands of women, oh boy, you know, like that just, they had a field day. Then they could just aim all of the marketing for products, for services, for whatever at the women and it's very easy to uh, manipulate them. That's the other reason it's great for them if women vote, because women can be very easily swayed. When you see these campaign, we're going into an election cycle, when you see campaign ads talking about, you know, oh, this party wants to starve the old people, and this party wants to take away children's lunches, and, and this party hates, you know, people who are on Medicare, and they, you'll see so much of this advertising that's designed to tug at your heartstrings. Or late at night when the SPCA commercials come on mm -hmm. and they have the Sarah McLaughlin song playing and all the sad, abused mm -hmm. animals. And they're like, call now and give us money. I mean, women are like, oh, call and, and donate. So um, it's a lot of that too. Our, our maternal instincts are continually weaponized against us by these kinds of people. So men, like my husband will see that. He kind of has to do that on my behalf sometimes because I, I, my first instinct is to say yes to everyone and to what's wrong, honey, how can I make it better? Do you want, do you want me to cook you something to eat? Should I, you know, what can I do for you? And there are people who will take advantage of that. And so sometimes my husband will see that and he'll be like, hold on a second. You know, this, are you sure this person deserves your time and help and sympathy or could they have an agenda? Right. Whereas I probably wouldn't think of that. So women need to start seeing men as our protectors again, because they truly are. And I think uh, if you go read all of my stuff, I think I do a good job of laying out a good case and a good argument for that. And against this idea that just if you eliminate all the men, it eliminates all the problems. It doesn't. It just puts a new set of bigger problems in your lap. And then if you are ever abused, if you are ever exploited, who do you go to? To stop the bad man, another man, a good man, right? If you're in an abusive yeah. relationship with a man, you go to the police, you go to a, a judge for a restraining order, you go to your father, you go to your brother who's big and scary to get rid of this bad man. So, yeah, I think it's, I think that uh, we do need men to, to take the reins back for that reason, because women are just so susceptible to propaganda. But there's a good side to that, too we can uh, use the same kind of tactics to allow women to go back to being comfortable in their feminine roles, being comfortable as mothers, uh, being fulfilled, fulfilled and happy. 
as, you know, the, the lady at church that if she's not there one Sunday, nothing goes right, right? You know, like coffee hour doesn't work and, and uh, you know, the, the potluck afterwards wasn't organized and the charity that we were going to do doesn't, doesn't get done if she's not there. Women had a crucial role in society in all of like taking care of the sick, the elderly, the young, the returning war veterans, uh, running children's orphanages, things like this. And we don't have those things anymore because we told women to go to the cubicle and the state's supposed to come in and do all that stuff. And it's it's been catastrophic. So we'd be so much better off if we could embrace traditional roles of each sex again. And each one of us is doing what we do best, but in cooperation with one another rather than in competition. Mm-hmm. And I think that what isn't well understood is that both men and women give something up in that arrangement, is that men are called to be sacrificial as husbands like it's not it's not easy being a husband or a father you know and being committed nor is it easy being a wife and a mother it's not comfortable for either person no one no one quote unquote gets away free from that arrangement but it is godly and it is prosperous and it does lead to fulfillment if not you know profit yeah definitely and in the orthodox christian church we actually still have marriage as a sacrament and we see it as a path to salvation When you marry your spouse, you are both responsible for each other's salvation because of that sacrifice. It's called an ascetic sacrifice, right? I'm giving up myself for you and you're giving up yourself for me. We're both learning to sacrifice. And this is why I think it's so dangerous that feminism pushes this message of sexual empowerment on very young women. So starting at like 15, 16, 17, these girls are getting the idea that your sex is your, your sexuality is your power and that you should never have to sacrifice or give up anything. You're perfect the way you are. You, you should, you know, have the power and control because of your sexuality without also telling them that this is a very Faustian deal because this is a very short period of time in your life. That's temporary. It doesn't last. Um, you're not going to be, they're looking at Jane Fonda and like the swimsuit illustrated cover with uh, Martha Stewart on their sexy at 80. And they're (laughs) thinking that this is how things work. No, that's all. It's like all a demonic delusion to make you think that when you're 80, you're still going to have this sexy power. And I, I have a friend even who said that to me. I was saying this and she said, I'm still going to be sexy, sexy when I'm 60. I don't know about you. And I was just like, oh. it's kind of, you know, to me, it's kind of embarrassing and demeaning too to tell elderly women who are like well past menopause to try to like want some kind of sexuality. I think it's degrading to them. But I think that the reason they like to push this sexual power stuff on really young women is because, like I said, it gets them to wall themselves off from repentance. It gets them to totally neglect self-development. You know, you can't do self-improvement if you think you're already perfect the way you are. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So telling them they're perfect the way they are and, you know, just Photoshop your body until you can get the most likes on your Instagram. It's just a, it's a terribly destructive thing. And um, I think that women are more important than that. I think we have a higher calling than that. And those young girls who never learn self-sacrifice struggle really hard when they get older. This is the other thing about it. You spend all of your 20s, your your late teens, and then all of your 20s, and maybe even a little bit of your 30s with this mentality, you're not going to get to 35 
go, oh shit, I've been doing everything wrong. I'm going to reform and turn it around and like try to get married and have a baby without tremendous difficulty. That's an extremely hard switch to flip. Because even if you find a great guy, and even if he can support you so you can have a baby, for you to go from this self-oriented uh, view of the world where everything's about you and your sexual power and, and getting clicks and likes and attention and I'm perfect the way I am to suddenly, okay, it's not really about me anymore. And maybe I only got four hours of sleep last night, but someone still has to get up and make the breakfast and this baby is crying. So I have to go get the baby, whether I'm ready to wake up or not. You know, the, the sacrificial nature of motherhood is an extremely tough transition for these women. And I've seen it in my own life with women I know really well, that when they try to suddenly switch over and do the trad mom stuff in their mid thirties, it's really hard on them. It's hard to get pregnant. It's hard to make that mental switch. It's hard to cope all of a sudden with your life being not about you anymore. So I'm often really thankful that the Lord saw fit for me to be a mother when I was young, because I think it was one of the best things that could have happened to me. I never built my entire view of myself around my attractiveness or my sexuality. It was built around other things like what I could do for the people around me, a service to the people I love in my life, um, things of value that I could provide to the world, uh, my intelligence, things like that. And I think that's much better for women. I think it destroys them when we, when we do it the other way. But a lot of women, they don't actually feel the urgency to become a wife and mother until their body starts telling them because no one tells them in their life. So one of the things that I'm running into on Twitter is like, hey, Christians, you got to start discipling your daughter to be wives and mothers under the age of 25. You got to start doing yeah. that. And I hear crickets when I say that. Okay, good. I'm not alone. And it's no. like, Right. Okay. It's like, oh, no, women shouldn't, women should be wives and mothers, but not, but not my daughter. Right. <laughs> Obviously right. she needs, right. And, and so, so what can we begin doing to address that younger generation? It's like, Hey, you better start thinking about this before your body wakes you up to this. Because by that point, it's quite late. It's quite late in, in many respects. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And that is one of the, that's one of the hardest pieces of conditioning to push back against. And this is where the lack of support for women who want to be mothers comes from. So like it really started with the baby boomer generation being super heavily programmed that you have to have a college degree or your life's going to be bad, right? Yeah. If you don't, I mean, my parents just absolutely pounded this into my head. And so did every teacher I had, especially because I was in like a gifted kid program when I was young. It was like, oh, you're going to go to college. You have to go to college. Don't even think about not going to college. So what, even what good Christian parents tell their kids now, their daughters is you have to do well in school. You must go to college and have a degree. Once you get out of college, you have to build a career. Once you're financially stable and all those things are set, then you can begin to think about looking for a husband and having a family. Now, does that work for some people? Sure. Does it cause serious problems for many people? Yes, it does. And here's why. Once a girl has invested all of the K through 12 years in her education and achieving enough in the education system to get into a good college and get a scholarship or things like that, and then she goes another four, maybe six years in, in university, she comes out with 
you know, now what, 16 to 18 years of investment of hard work that she's put in. She's probably going to come out with an average of 35 to 45,000 in college debt. That's the average now. And by the way, most college debt is not held by women. 65% of all college debt is held by women. You wonder why they don't want to have babies. It's because they get out with all this debt, all this investment put in. And of course they feel like, well, now I have to build a career because I got to make enough money to pay off all these student loans and I don't want to have waste at all. Why tell women to invest all this time and effort in an education if you're going to be a mom? Like this drove me nuts about the Trump administration. They had this huge program with Ivanka Trump pushing mothers into the workplace. We're going to get mothers back to work. We're going to make it easier for mothers to go back to work. And I was like the lone voice in the wilderness going, why? You know, Because if you want to know why the average woman only has 1.3 children in America now, that's why. It would make no sense to all of a sudden when you're 30 and you've invested all of your life's efforts up to that point in your education and career to go, okay, now it's time to stay home and have kids. Who would do that? It makes no sense. So why are we telling them that? And it's because we've had decades of propaganda scaring the shit out of everybody that if your daughter doesn't have her own degree and her own career and her own money, she's going to end up with an abusive husband. That's always the underlying threat. And so we fear monger women to death about what could happen to them if they are in the vulnerable situation of being a stay-at-home mom and dependent on their husband. But think about this, everybody. Why don't we also fearmonger career women about all the things that can go wrong there? Do we bother to tell young women that the vast majority of women who get a degree don't even get a job in the thing they got the degree in or they make way less money than they thought? The average woman makes 40,000 a year with a degree. She's got 40,000 in debt, she makes 40,000 a year. That's not a very good trade-off. And we don't say, "Oh, you you want to be a you know, you want to be a hairstylist? What if you cut off a finger? What if you become allergic to the chemicals you're working with? What are you going to do then? Or like 80% of psychology degrees are now earned by women. We don't tell women, why are you getting a degree in psychology? The market is completely saturated and you're never going to get a good paying job. This is a terrible return on investment. We don't ever say that to them. So again, it's this lack of rationally and objectively looking at, okay, why am I picking this path? What's the return on investment? How's my life going to go? What about the second half of my life, right? It's all based on fear-mongering and propaganda that women are at risk if they don't have a degree in their own money. And that's just simply not true. It's just, it's a silly, uh, it sounds right because you've heard it so much, but it's actually not the case. We do not see this epidemic of married women like just being abused at insane rate. We don't see that. What we see is the opposite. Those women tend to fare better, report better happiness, have all, all the statistics suggest they are in a safer living situation, a more stable living situation. They have a brighter you know, financial future ahead and they have a more fulfilling second half of their lives. Uh, and we don't say that to working women. So I think that uh, this idea that college is for everyone is brand new. We never used to tell women that every single woman has to go to college. We never said every single man has to go to college. University was invented for like that top five or 10% of really smart people who needed specific academic training in a certain field. 
It was never meant to be for every single person. That happened in 1966 when the United Nations figured out that university systems were a great place for indoctrination and social engineering. And so we're going to push everyone there, right? And because they did want to steer towards certain career paths and fill certain fields and things like that. But it was never this idea that just the powers that be care so much about women. No, sorry, they don't. They don't care about you. They don't care about your safety. <laughs> the corporation you go to work for is going to replace you the day after you die. They'll go, oh, Mary died. That's so sad. Well, you better get that job posting up because we got to fill that spot. Whereas if you're a mother, like I am, if something happens to me, I'm not replaceable. You know, my loss would be felt for, for a long time to come. Not that I want that, but it means that I, if I want a legacy, this is the way to build a legacy, not by going to work in a cubicle or, or try to be a sex in the city girl or something like that. So it's, it's got a lot to do with propaganda and messaging and the fact that people don't look to the church anymore for their purpose in life, for guidance. Uh, nobody goes to their priest for counsel anymore. They go to a psychologist who's going to yeah. tell them all this feminist nonsense, you know. So it's it's a symptom of a spiritual problem. But as far as the practical way to solve it, I mean, that's a it's a really tough nut to crack. I think you and I have talked about some good ideas and some things that would be helpful. Um, but we'll just have to see if people listen, let's see if people like me and all the others that we've talked about are going to be listened to. And if people will, like what we're saying is going to sit well with people and if they'll follow it, or if they're going to decide that more girl boss feminism, Taylor Swift and Beyonce stuff is the way to go, I guess. Yeah. Do we engage the war? Do we withdraw from the battlefield? Do we let it, let it all collapse and enjoy the decline? Do we, do we, do we fight the good fight on, on social media? Like what's, what's, what do, I, mean, I think these are questions that we all sit with every day. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, revolutions can go both ways, right? Like I said, if, uh, if we got here this way, we can, we can get out of it, but I don't know if that'll happen. Um, what I do know is that each person listening to this can decide for themselves. And that's, that's why I try primarily to get younger women to think about this. Like people gave me a lot of criticism for working with Pearl and some of the like younger Gen Z crowd. But I'm like, why do I want to talk to women my age who are already past, you know, right. those years? I want to reach the younger girls that my daughters are friends with who think, who are convinced that they are bisexual who uh, think that having a baby is gross and icky and think that they're all like, every, this is so funny. Every single one of these girls, okay, is going to be either a veterinarian or a psychologist. Mm. Every friend that all of my daughters have, and I bet all of you listening, if you have young ladies in your life and you ask them what they want to do, they all think that, I'm like, first of all, you're taking care of people and animals. Why do you think you're drawn to this? Could it be yeah. that you have a motherly instinct? And then it's like, do you all really think you're going to be a veterinarian or a psychologist? Like every little girl's going to grow up and do these same few jobs. Um, no, I just think that it's a, it's a product of all the propaganda. So you can fight the propaganda war. You can fight the culture war. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're just going to win, right? I think a lot of people have this black and white idea that like you either win or you if you're not first you're last right that kind of a thing it's like the whole world is never going to follow us and christ tells us you know 
that the world will hate you first. If the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. So we're never going to get the whole world on our side, but we can certainly make improvements. We can certainly give hope for people who are looking. I guess that's the point, right? It's like, if there's young women out there who are kind of like, I don't know, I feel like something's off, I feel, but I guess I'll just do what everyone's telling me. They usually end up looking and finding the truth. So for the people who want to find out what's going on, for the people who want to find out the truth, they'll probably get here at some point. I just hope they find it before it's too late for them. That's why I'm trying to tailor my message to younger people to the extent that I can. I'm a 45-year-old lady. I'm not like cool. Really? My kids tell me every day I'm not cool, but I'm trying, cool. My, I'm trying my best. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to talk about your work with Pearl a little bit? I mean, I, I know who she is. I don't follow her. I don't, I haven't watched her, her channel. It hasn't seemed like something that it seems like probably something now that I should pay attention to, but I know that she's making a lot of waves and it looks like she's having a lot of fun as well, which is always the best thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. So she and I, like, it's kind of funny because in a way you'd think that we would be the least likely people to push this message. She was a, like a semi-pro athlete. She's six foot tall volleyball player, very athletic. Mm -hmm. She's been playing since she was young, uh, like three to five hours a, a day of her life growing up was, you know, preparing for this career as a volleyball or basketball athlete. She's a diehard tomboy, but she's from a big family and she did, was raised by two parents. So she had that going for her. And then I also have like a tomboy background. I'm a firearms instructor on the side. I do oh, wow. like, yeah, I do CPL and basic pistol instruction with my dad. And um, like I lift weights and I listen to heavy metal and stuff like that. So I have like this very tomboy background growing up on farms. All my friends were guys and stuff like that when I was little. And then as I got older and became a mom, then I found my femininity and and really embraced that side of myself as well, which is another reason why I don't like the the trans stuff because I feel like I would have been a prime target for that if I had been born 30 years later. I probably could have been convinced I was supposed to be a boy when I was little. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like all girls, we go through our awkward years and then we become women and then we embrace our femininity through motherhood and things like that. So I do have a heart for those young ladies too, who are being targeted with that propaganda. But what Pearl and I both kind of, she, she started to find like red pill stuff about two years ago. And she mm -hmm. is, um, she's a little bit, I would say, abnormally rational for a woman. Uh, the same thing's been said about me. Edward Dutton said, he, he said in his British voice, oh, you might be one of these minority women that has the mind of a man, aren't you? And I was like, Maybe a little bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> part, of, part of my brain is very analytical that way. So I think we kind of looked around and went, but this doesn't make sense. You know, it's kind of just starts with this sense that things don't add up. And you're like, but why? And you're very curious. So you go digging and looking and, you know, she finds red pill stuff and I start looking into history and we both kind of figured out different aspects of this feminism stuff. Now she's very provocative. She's very controversial. She knows that she is, but she's like, hey, if I'm not a little provocative, uh, no one's ever going to hear what I'm saying anyway. So, right. and she's not afraid to do it. And I admire that about her. So I was like, let's do a show or something. And I sent her my book and she was like, whoa, this is really good stuff. Like, let's do a show. So we did one stream together that did really, really well and got crazy good feedback. Then she was like, okay, let's, let's get into this religion stuff a little bit, which I give her credit for because... 
in the red pill circles, that's not very popular. Nope. It's not very acceptable nope. in a lot of those circles. So she got some pushback, but she's like, well, bring on a couple people you think would be good. So I brought Tim Gordon, who is a Catholic who's written a book on patriarchy. His wife wrote an awesome book called Ask Your Husband. Uh, she's a stay-at-home mom like me with a big family. And I brought Jay Dyer, who's an Orthodox Christian. And then Pearl brought Glenn Lawrence, who's a red pill guy, but a Protestant Christian. And we talked about this idea of infiltration of the institutions, which includes the church, by the way. Oh, the yeah. church has been targeted by the same powers because religious institutions are extremely influential. So if you're a wealthy billionaire philanthropist who wants to redesign society, you're going to target the churches, and they have. So we went over all of that evidence and explained how that works. So um, we may be doing some other stuff coming up that I can't tell you about yet, but it's kind of this idea, you know, she gets accused of being a grifter all the time. So do I, but I think it's a little easier to target her because they're like, well, why aren't you married? Why don't you have kids? And she's like, look, I'm a product of the generation I was raised in too. Right. I only figured this out two years ago. Like, what do you want me to do? Like poof a husband into existence? It's a little, little complicated for her at this point. So not that she doesn't want that. She does. But she's like, look, I'm just pointing out what's going on. I'm not saying I'm an example. I'm not giving people advice. I'm just asking the questions and presenting the information. Okay. So I, she really does. She, she, I've talked to her a lot in private and she, she does believe in this stuff, right? She believes feminism is stupid and it's ruining everything. And she's like, I could have turned out totally different. Why was I raised to be an athlete? Like, why was there this big push for me to be an athlete and go to college? She's like, now I'm 26 and it's really hard for me to all of a sudden transition over to get married and have kids because, well, now she's already found some professional success and like I said, it's just hard to like just flip a switch all of a sudden and be a trad wife. So for her personally, it's caused some struggle for her in her life. And she's like, look, I just see things how they are. And I'm just saying this is what I'm seeing, right? So that's kind of her perspective on it. And then mine is like, uh, you know, it's driven more by my maternal instinct and the future of my kids. And hopefully I'll have lots of grandkids. I'm really concerned about what, how children are growing up and what kind of homes they have. And I'm sure she's concerned about those things too, but we just have like this common interest and we both just see it as a giant facade. We basically see it as a huge um, scam that's been run on everybody. And if you see that, don't you have an obligation to say something about it? You know, so, so both of us just feel like, let's just get some attention on this. Let's start exposing stuff. Let's start talking about data and facts and history and Maybe once people actually examine this, rather than just being conditioned by propaganda, some of this will start to break down. And I feel like, I guess we could kind of end it on this sort of a note. This movement claims to be by women for women. I've been told my whole life that I owe it to these brave feminist activists who came before me, that I couldn't do anything if it wasn't for them, which isn't true. But I'm like, at the very least, if this is supposed to be for me, for my daughters, if, if it's supposed to be for Pearl, right? If feminism's for us, why don't we have a right to scrutinize it? Why don't we have a right to evaluate it in its totality and decide if we think it was good enough for us or not? If we think it made things better for us or not? Don't tell us that women deserve to be heard and women are important 
and this is all for women, and then also say you are not allowed to question it, and how dare you say anything negative about it, and don't you dare examine the outcomes of this revolution. I think that's absurd, and I think as women, we have every right to decide if feminism actually helped us or if it was detrimental to us, at the very least. So, I mean, that's how I feel about it, so I don't think, no matter how much hate mail I get, I don't think I'm going to be staying quiet about it anytime soon. Nor do I think you should. I think that was beautiful. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is this conversation has been an enormous blessing, and I have many female listeners. I think they're going to get a lot of it, but the, men, the male listeners as well. So, thank you so much for your book, and thank you for your work, and thank you for 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 again fighting the good fight on social media <laughs> against yeah. this against this giant scam. Yeah. Well, same to you, and thank you so much for having me on. I love any opportunity to talk about this stuff, and. I'm super happy that you came out of the new age and and that you Mm -hmm. found Christ because that's, like you said, it's a huge blessing for your life. And I don't think people know what a blessing that is until it happens for them. So if people kind of want to know about, you know, why, Rachel, how did you become so based? You know, (laughs) like, how'd you get so based? Really, it's because... I took the Christ pill, right? So uh, (laughs) luckily, a side effect of my work has been a lot of people looking back into Christianity, looking back at the church, you know, um, I get a lot of messages like that too. So if I can help in that way, I'm happy to do that too. Yeah. There's a giant new age to Christ movement happening and it's driving a lot of new age influencers crazy because they can't stop it. It's it's also more to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, where would you like to send people to find out more about you and what you do? Sure. Um, You can go to my Substack. I've got a lot of you know, other work I publish on there. It's rwilson.substack.com. You can go to my YouTube channel, which is just Rachel Wilson, or you can buy my book on Amazon. It's Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation. Wonderful. And it actually returned, Amazon will actually bring it up in search results now because it didn't when I looked for it in February. Yeah, the feminists, the, the feminists tried to mass report my book as not being my own intellectual property to try to get it taken down. So I had to do a whole appeal with Amazon and prove that it was my book and then they put it back up. But yeah, uh, they've got troll reviews on my account that I can't get removed. So if you guys do read the book and you love it, I would totally appreciate a good review just to counteract some of the uh, phony, they're obvious troll reviews. But for some reason, they're extremely hard to get removed. I'll go I'll go do that. So thank you again, (laughs) Rachel. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.